Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth director here, and I'm so glad you have joined us for our online worship service this morning. As we begin and prepare for our sermon, if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. And while you're turning there, I think it's, it's helpful for us to take stock of, of where we are in the life of our church right now and in the life of the world right now. We are beginning our Easter series to the day almost exactly one year since the last time our church was able to gather together in full in person for our corporate worship service. The last time we did that was March 8th, 2020, and now it's the 7th, 2021. And so much has happened in this year. A lot of times for all of us, it is difficult to see evidence of God's sovereignty and His goodness in our life. Whether we're looking big picture, we're looking around at the world, or we're looking at things in our, in our own nation, our own state, our own community, at all of these different levels, so many hard things have been happening and continue to happen. And then for us personally, so many of us as individuals and in our families, we've experienced hard things there, and there's often a connection between those and the things happening in the world. But it's in long seasons of tumult like this that it can be tough. To, to believe and remember that God is the sovereign king and he is good and he reigns. And so it's wonderful, it's so good and life-giving for our church that now as we begin our Easter series, we're going to turn to Luke's gospel and we're going to behold King Jesus. In particular, we're going to be looking at the humiliation and exaltation of King Jesus in Luke's gospel. And when we're talking about his humiliation, we're talking about Jesus as the crucified king. We're talking about the, the long journey, the downward journey that began with the incarnation when he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by, by taking on the human nature, becoming human just like us and becoming a servant. And his whole life, he is giving up his divine rights. He is counting others more significant than himself. He is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his humiliation. And there on the cross, we see his exaltation breaking in because he conquers sin, death, and Satan there. His exaltation refers to him being the risen Lord, the conquering king. And we see that manifested in his resurrection as he's raised from the dead, victorious over the powers of darkness. And his exaltation continues with his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father, his enthronement as king. And his exaltation continues this very second because he is reigning and ruling over all things and in particular watching over his church. And his exaltation will culminate with his return when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And so we are looking at the crucified king, Christ's humiliation, and the risen Lord, Christ's exaltation this Easter. We want to see our king in his, as he's revealed to us in his word so that we can see him in our life. We can remember he reigns yet even now. And as we turn to our first text this morning, the key truth we're going to see about King Jesus today is that because Jesus is our sovereign king who weeps for the lost, we get to devote ourselves to him through our worship and mission. Let me read that again. Because Jesus is our sovereign king who weeps for the lost, we get to devote ourselves to Him through our worship and mission. So let's see that come to life this morning in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. This is the word of our God for us, His people. And when Jesus had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we begin and we, we look at this part of the story, it's helpful to ask ourselves a, a question to, to help us really appreciate who Jesus is as he's revealed to us in Luke's gospel this morning. And that question is, are you more likely to overlook Jesus' sovereignty or his gentleness? For all sorts of reasons, whether it's our interest in theology and our study of scripture, or it's our own personality, our story, our background, we tend to gravitate towards one of these things or the other in Jesus' character. Sometimes we really emphasize His sovereignty. He's in control of all things. And other times we emphasize His gentleness. He is loving, He is kind, He is patient. And they're both true, but if you only focus on one or the other, oftentimes you wind up in a very similar place. You wind up growing apathetic in worship and mission. You, you think, well, if Jesus is gentle, then my sin is no big deal. Um, you know, I'm sure... I don't want to offend people with the gospel. And so you, you, you start to kind of get into a routine with worship and you don't get too active with mission. And the same thing can happen with sovereignty. You can think, you know, God's in control. What's going to happen? It's going to happen. He's going to save who He's going to save. And your participation in those things starts to dwindle as well. And so what we're going to see from this text is that Jesus is both sovereign and gentle. You need both of those things. You need to know both of them in Jesus because that's who He is. And those things shape radically to the core our life as His disciples, as we follow Him, as we devote ourselves to Him in worship and in mission. 
Now the first part of the text we're going to look at is verses 28 through 40. And we're going to see that Jesus is the sovereign king of creation and history. And as we turn to this part of the text, we need to recognize that we are jumping into Luke's gospel in, in the back end of it. This is the culminating point of what some commentators call the travel narrative. Because back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And for 10 chapters, Luke has been building anticipation as Jesus gets closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's been teaching his disciples. He's been teaching the people who are following him. He's been doing miracles and signs and wonders. He's even mentioned that he's coming to Jerusalem to die. But in Luke 19, verse 11, just a couple verses before our passage this morning, his disciples, as they see all these things happening, they're assuming that the kingdom will appear immediately, as soon as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. They see all crown, all exaltation. They don't see the cross. They don't see his humiliation, even though he's been teaching them these things. And while we could say, well, why didn't they listen to Jesus? You have to recognize that what they see Jesus doing is they see Him sovereignly orchestrating events to fulfill Scripture. We see His sovereignty because of the way He instructs His disciples and sends them to get the colt. He could be here acting as the perfect prophet, where He just tells them ahead of time, here's exactly what's going to happen, down to the detail, down to what you'll be asked and what you should say. Alternatively, it may be that the people who owned this colt were disciples of Jesus. They may not have been with a traveling group, but he may have worked out with them ahead of time that, hey, I'm going to send some disciples to you one day. And if they say the Lord has need of it, you know that it's not just people stealing your colt, but it's people I sent. So be ready to share that colt with me. Well, either way that Jesus is sovereignly arranging things here, we see he is orchestrating these events. And he is doing it for a purpose. He is doing it because he is the king and he is fulfilling scripture that prophesied this moment. On the one hand, he's fulfilling Malachi 3.1, in which it was said that the Israel would need to prepare the way for the Lord because he was coming, and he was coming to visit his temple. And that's exactly where Jesus is going in this story. He is the coming Lord coming to the temple. And even more explicitly, Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. That prophecy says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so when the disciples see Jesus doing this, because usually if you were a king and you were riding into town with this sort of royal celebration, you wouldn't ride a donkey, you would ride a war horse or something, you know, a little more magnificent. And so to the disciples, they know their Old Testament. They know the Bible. They know Zechariah 9.9, and they see Jesus doing this, and they recognize He's the King. He's coming. He is righteous. He has salvation in His hand. And yes, they thought that that meant He would deliver them from Rome, but they recognize who Jesus is, even if they don't quite fully see exactly what He's doing. And so they, they bring the donkey. They put cloaks on it so Jesus would not ride barebacked, but that He would be honored, and they set Him on the donkey. And then they're laying their cloaks out before the donkey so that even its feet don't have to touch the dirt. They're giving Jesus the first century version of a red, a red carpet treatment. They're honoring Him. And as they get closer and closer to Jerusalem, Luke points out that they can't contain their joy. It's already on the way down the mountain as they're approaching the city that they break out into worship and praise. 
They, they draw on Psalm 118, verse 26. That was our call to worship this morning. And we see that they actually tweak the psalm a little bit, which says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They change it to blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They know Jesus is the king. He is coming to his own people. And yet for all the disciples' joy and their worship and their praise of the Lord and of Jesus, the Pharisees see this and they rain on the parade. They don't just want Jesus to ask the disciples, hey, can you pipe down a little, you know, turn it from a 10 down to a 2 or 3, contain yourselves a little bit. They want Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And Jesus has rebuked people in Luke's gospel before, especially the demons that he has cast out of people. To rebuke someone isn't to say, hey, hey, you know, calm down, contain yourself. It is to tell them you are wrong. It's to condemn them in the strongest possible terms, to correct them for some error. Because to the Pharisees, the, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus are committing a grave error. They're calling the wrong guy king. And yes, there's some power play going on here. There's some jealousy on the Pharisees' parts. They don't like Jesus getting all this attention. But at the same time, they're afraid. They're afraid because Passover is upon Israel. And whenever Passover would come, Israelites would travel from all over the empire to come to Jerusalem. It would swell with a great multitude of people. And in Israel's history, especially since Rome had been their imperial overlords, there was a history of revolt, especially when lots of people were gathered and were excited in their worship. And so Rome would heighten security during this time. And so in the Pharisees' mind, they are no fans of Rome. They are not like the Herodians, which was a different group of Jews who, who were much more um, up close and personal and in friendly terms with the Roman leaders. The Pharisees despised Rome's authority. But at the same time, they liked their safety and security. They liked the way they were able to live. They wanted to be able to just worship the Lord and pursue righteousness in private without the government messing up things. And right now, they had a good thing going. And when they see Jesus rolling into town with this royal procession and His disciples drawing attention to it, they're afraid that Rome's going to notice and that it won't just be Jesus and His disciples who are dealt with, but it would be all of Jerusalem, all of Israel. And so they're scared. They want to see the disciples rebuked because they want to protect what they've got. They don't want to worship. And Jesus' response to them is amazing because He doesn't turn and rebuke them. Here they are missing the king standing before them. Jesus has every right to rebuke them, but he doesn't. He calmly just answers them and says, look, even if I glued their mouth shut, even if he, if he forced the disciples to be quiet, the stones would cry out in praise and worship and welcome their king. You see, Jesus is saying the very stones that will one day be toppled in Jerusalem, the stones of the city or maybe he has in mind the stones on the side of the road. Either way, a stone is an inanimate object. It, it has no life in it. But he's saying all of creation has been groaning and looking forward to this moment when the king would return. Ever since the fall, this moment has been anticipated by all creation. And you Pharisees, you're missing it. But the rocks, the stones, they see it. And they're praising him. This is a good moment as we, as we look at these different responses to Jesus, especially in terms of worship, it's a good moment for us to take stock of our own worship of King Jesus. A question that's worth asking is, how is your life shaping your worship of King Jesus? And then flipping that back around, how is your worship of King Jesus shaping 
your life. You see, the two are always mutually shaping one another. Your life influences your worship, and your worship is influencing your life. The question is, are you aware of how that's happening? It can happen in great ways. The things going on in your life, whether good or ill, they can prepare you for worship. Good things can, can be reason for celebration and thanksgiving in worship. Bad things can be, can be things that, that bring you um, just, just thirsty and in, in great sense of your dependence upon the Lord as you come to worship each week. And your worship can prepare you to see God's goodness in life and to help you endure hard times in life. And I think that's important for us to remember in this season because it, is, it, it has been and it will continue to be a hard season especially as we hit one year of the pandemic. Things will sit, sit and land on us in, I think, a weightier way. You know, the adrenaline rush of, of just trying to survive the first rush of this um, wears off and the weight of it all sinks in. And so I think this quote from Arkent Hughes, who is a pastor theologian from, from his commentary on Luke, I think this is really helpful for us to remember here. He says, we must keep ever before us that on the day Christ rode humbly into Jerusalem, the Jerusalem then dominated by Roman pomp and splendor, he was absolutely in control. He was in control the entire length of, of the Passion Week. The wheel of history did not crush him. Jesus was turning the wheel. And so this morning, as, as you gather for worship, wherever, wherever you are as you've joined us for this online service, Jesus is absolutely in control. The things that are going on that, that you feel like are crushing your soul and, and dashing your hope, Jesus has not been toppled from His throne. It's not even a possibility. And as you gather for worship this morning, whether you're depressed or you're distracted or you're downcast, you can take heart. Because you've not come to listen to a life coach tell you just think better thoughts and have better habits and everything will get better. You've come to worship the Sovereign King who holds all of history in His hands, who holds you in His hands. And you've come, and in this worship, He is changing you, He is comforting you, He is encouraging you. And as you get to see Him now in worship, He is giving you eyes to see Him in your life, in the best of times and in the worst of times. And so, amen, that we can come and we can worship this King. And we can celebrate the ways He has been with us in thick and thin in our life. We can celebrate it now in worship, and in worshiping, we can be prepared to go back out into our everyday life, and we can see evidence of His reign in all things. Now let's turn back to the text and look at verses 41 through 48 and see that this sovereign king is also King Jesus who weeps for the lost. You see, the disciples, as they're celebrating and they're praising Jesus, they're expecting triumph. Though He has taught them otherwise, they're still seeing all crown and no cross. But he is entering not in triumph, but in sorrow. Rather than displaying might and strength, he is exhibiting gentleness here and compassion because he is doing what he said back in Luke 19, verse 10. He is the Son of Man who has come to seek and to save the lost. And just imagine how startling it would have been as the disciples are celebrating and suddenly Jesus is weeping. And consider also what is going to happen. And Jesus knows what is going to happen. He is entering Jerusalem not to be welcomed, but to be rejected, despised, wrongly condemned, and executed. And so he weeps, but he weeps not for himself. He's not weeping as one, you know, who's being dragged to the dentist office for a root canal or being dragged to some horrible thing that we're dreading to have happen to us. He is weeping for the very ones 
who will kill him. The word Luke uses for weep here, or for wept, is the word you would have used in Greek to describe a little child crying. Jesus is not some, you know, macho action hero who lets one lone tear, you know, travel down his cheek in like a sliver show of emotion, just to add dramatic effect. He is, he is showing real emotion. He's not losing control of his emotions, but, but the compassion, the sorrow, the lamentation he feels here, it is not a show. It is true human emotion because what he is considering is the horrific events of 70 AD. You see, after Jesus ascends back into heaven, a few decades later, in judgment for the rejection of their king, they would rise up against Rome as they had done in the past. Rome would come, they would besiege the city. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about, about them coming around and hemming you in. And a few years into the siege, Jerusalem would fall. And when it would fall, the Roman general would come in and he was horrified by what he saw as the people had starved and turned on each other in the, mid, in the meantime. And Rome destroyed the city. They hardly left anything standing. The temple, gone. The carnage was awful. And Jesus knows this is coming and he knows it's coming because they're rejecting him. And so he feels real and deep emotion towards it. And the fact that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem should stagger us today. It should give us pause. He's the Son of God who took on flesh, so He is truly God and He is truly human. And if His response to the lost is such as this, in His true humanity, with weeping and tears and lamentation, then how should you and I respond to the lost? We sometimes say, well, but He's truly God. You know, only God changes hearts. Couldn't Jesus of all people do something about this? And if only God changes hearts, then, you know, what can I do? And so often we say that, and it's true, only God can change hearts. But often we say that and then turn away from the lost. We grow numb towards them. But if the Son of God weeps like this, then shall our cheeks be dry. The point for us to remember, especially as Reformed Presbyterians, who are, are big on the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty over all things, is that Jesus' example here, as the sovereign king who also weeps, is that the doctrine of sovereignty, the doctrine of predestination, is not something that excuses us from mission. It's not meant to numb us to the plight of the lost, the horrors of hell, the consequences for sin. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is meant to comfort His people, to give us assurance of our salvation, to remind us that we are not saved by anything we've done, and so our salvation cannot be lost. It is in God's hands. And with that assurance, we are then encouraged, we are strengthened, so then we can go and we can join the king in his mission to seek and save the lost. We can join him as his ambassadors, as his disciples who make disciples. We can do something that from every other perspective other than faith in Jesus seems ludicrous, seems crazy. Proclaiming the crucified king and saying, here is the only hope in this world. And we can do that with confidence that it will bear fruit because our God is sovereign. And it's helpful to see how this, this compassionate and gentle mission to the lost, it is shaping everything Jesus is doing as he enters Jerusalem because he goes to the temple next, having wept over the city. And as Passover approaches, what you need to understand about what he, he does in the temple is that as the Jews would gather from around the empire and they would come to Jerusalem for Passover, they had to do two things. Number one, they had to buy an animal to sacrifice 
at the temple to have the priest sacrifice it for them so they could properly eat the Passover meal. You wouldn't usually travel with that animal because you'd have to feed it along the way. That would slow you down. So you'd buy one when you got to town. And number two, you had to pay the temple tax. This was how the Jews supported the temple throughout the year. And if you came from out of town, odds are you had the wrong kind of currency. You had to change your money. And so that's why there would be money changers in, in the temple. Um, and that's why there were people selling animals. But at the same time, they were outside the temple, but they'd also now set up inside the temple. And the part of the temple they set up in was the outer court, which was where the Gentiles could come. And Philip Graham Ryken, another pastor theologian, he helps us see exactly why that was such a problem in Jesus' eyes. Ryken says this, By buying and selling in the outer court, the money changers were effectively excluding the Gentiles from the worship of God. And thus, they were failing to fulfill their mission to the world. This is what made Jesus so angry. It was not simply what the people were doing, all the buying and the selling. It was also what they were not doing, praying to God or reaching the lost. Luke's version of, of this part of the story is a lot more compressed than the other gospel writers, but he very clearly has some references to the Old Testament that Jesus makes. Jesus is referencing Isaiah 56, which says the house of the Lord would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And so Jesus knows this is supposed to be the part of the temple where the Gentiles can come and they can pray to the Lord. But you, temple authorities, you've made it like a spiritual Walmart. You've commodified worship. You've made everything convenient and easy for those who are already part of God's people. They don't have to look anywhere. They can just focus on the temple their whole life, their whole religious life can be spent there. They don't need to worry about anyone on the outside anymore. They're not going to be able to be even in their view because we've pushed them out. And so then he also draws from Jeremiah 7:11, calling it a den of robbers. It's a strong term. He's saying that you are only focused on your own gain, whether that's religiously or making profit by selling these animals and changing money. That you've commodified worship and you are, you've become hypocrites. A den of robbers means this is a place where you come and, and you gloat in your sin and you think it's all okay because you're just doing the religious things and you're masking over it all. And then the biggest problem isn't just that you're doing all of that hypocritically. But the biggest problem Jesus saw with this, and the reason he pushes them out, is what they were not doing. They were no longer focused on the life of the world. They were no longer focused on seeing the nations come in and know the Lord. And so we need to ask ourselves, as individuals and as a church, how do we view people who do not believe in Jesus? Do we view them as a burden? Do we view them as the enemy to be afraid of? Do we view them as, as an obstacle to getting what we want? And then in what ways should Jesus' sovereignty and gentleness shape our interactions with unbelievers? What do we learn from Him and the way He is caring for the lost and seeking them to save them in this story. Jesus' sovereignty, again, like we were saying about, about that a minute ago, it, it should give us courage and hope as we engage the lost. It's not a reason to say, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. I don't need to worry about them. No, no, no. It gives us confidence that when we engage the lost in the name of Jesus with the gospel, we can have hope that it will bear fruit over time. And His gentleness reminds us that we should engage with humility, with patience, with compassion. The world is full of people who are harsh in sharing their beliefs and in saying what they think will make the world a better place. And 
If you're an unbeliever, that makes sense. Because it's all on you. You don't have a sovereign God that you can worship and trust to make all things right. It is all on you. And so, of course, you would be angry and anxious in the way that you respond to people who disagree with you. But it ought not be so with us, the church. We worship and we follow the sovereign and gentle king. It's in his hands. We are but instruments in his hands that he uses to bring people in. And so we can pay the cost of being compassionate, of being humble, of being patient. We don't need to be angry in how we relate to unbelievers. And I think a lot of times we may find ourselves in this world wondering, does the world even still care about Jesus? But we know that the first century world didn't really care too much about Jesus because they're about to kill him. The real question is, does the world need Jesus? And the answer is yes. The world needs Jesus. And we look at how much life his words gave the people. They were hanging on his words. They're hanging on the words of the one who will be hung on a cross because in those words is life. And so we can take heart. The person in your life that you think is furthest from knowing Jesus, even if you're right in that assessment, they still need him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the sovereign king can reach that person's heart, that he can use you through patient and gentle friendship over maybe many years and through humble conversation about this king to draw that person that they could become part of the family? That's the hope we see here as we look at our king in this text. And that's what we see Luke 19, 28 through 48 teaching us this morning. It teaches us that we get to, that we have the great gift and joy to worship the king who is sovereign over all creation and history. And, and to be shaped by that worship that we can endure these hard times with hope that's real because our king reigns. And we also get to participate in this king's mission to seek and to save the lost. And there's a lot we could say about that. And if, if you're wondering, what should you be doing as you, as you think about engaging with unbelievers? I'd love to talk to you about that. And I think one helpful thought to end with comes from a sermon Charles Spurgeon gave. I don't know what was going on in the life of his church at this time. I, I tried to figure it out, but I couldn't. But it's clear something hard was happening. And Spurgeon was trying to help his church see this event under the reign of Jesus. Listen to what he has to say. He says, the deepest tenderness, it may be, some of us have yet to learn. Perhaps we are passing through a school in which we shall be taught it, and if we do but learn it, we need not care how severe the instructive discipline may be. We are not to weep continually. Not even Jesus did that. Yet we are always to feel a tender love towards people so that we would be ready to die for them if we might but save them from the wrath to come and bring them into the haven of the Savior's rest. See, the point of this, this story is not that you need to be weepy-washy about the lost, um, you know, especially if you're not you know, someone who tends to feel great depth of emotion. You may be wondering, well, what, what are you saying here, Jesus? What am I supposed to do? Spurgeon's right. The point's not the tears. The point is what's going on in the heart behind the tears. It's this tender love towards the lost, this willingness to be poured out by our King to be used to bring people to know Him. And I think that's a helpful way to think about this time. It is a hard time. And we don't know everything that God is doing in the world and in His church. But may it not be the case that He's revealing to us our impatience. He's revealing to us all the ways that our busy pace of life had been pushing away any thought of those who don't believe. And, and, and might He not be softening us 
to equip us with a tender love, a gentle spirit, that He might use us in, in great ways in our community, in our families, with our friends, that many more would come and know this King. That ought be our prayer. Amen? Well, would you join me now in prayer? Lord Jesus, you are our King. You are sovereign. You are gentle. And we find great hope in both aspects of who you are. That you are sovereign over times even such as these. That you are gentle towards us, though we, we will never deserve that. So would you comfort us this morning in our worship? Comfort us. Give us eyes to see evidence of your reign in our life. As we look back on the past week and as we look ahead to this coming week, would you use this season, Lord, to soften us, to help us to see not only what it is we are doing in a better light, but also to see the things we are not doing and, and to grow in us, Lord, a desire to, to proclaim the, the beauty, the gospel of King Jesus, to patiently tell people about him in friendship and in our families and in our spheres of influence. Lord, I know that that calling for so many of us feels like a burden. It feels scary feels like something else we just got to do and feel bad about for not doing, but we know if you're our sovereign and gentle king, there is no condemnation in Christ, and so we get to think about doing these things. We get to do them. So help us to see that. Use this time to give us new eyes in the way we see you, in the way we see ourselves, and in the way we see this world. We pray all this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.